0: well we've been making our way through first timothy we're going to continue to do that today is uh the last three verses in chapter one and it kind of brings to close the issue the problem that is going on in the church of ephesus of false teaching and a little bit of a wrestling and wrangling for who is going to be pastoring and leading that church um as uh as the days uh were approaching where the apostle paul was leaving and so we come to the end first Timothy chapter 1 verses 18 through 20 say this This command I entrust to you Timothy my son in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you that by them you fight the good fight keeping faith and a good conscience which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander I have whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme let's pray father thank you for your word uh, that cuts that teaches that heals Lord I pray uh, today as we come together as your body uh, Lord that you would help me as a teacher of your church to speak that which you have said Lord Lord I pray that you've prepared hearts and will continue to that that each one and here, if there is sin left unconfessed, Lord, that they would confess it to you and walk rightly with you, Lord. Thank you for this great privilege of coming together in this great nation to hear your word taught, Lord. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Edward John Smith was born to a potter by the name of Edward Smith and mother Catherine Hancock on the 27th of January, 1850. Smith attended Euteria British School until the age of 13 when he left to operate a steam hammer at the Euteria Forge. At the age of 17, he went to Liverpool in the footsteps of his half-brother, Joseph Hancock, who was a captain on a sailing ship and apprenticed to do the same. In March 1880, 13 years later, Smith joined the White Star Line as the fourth officer of the SS Celtic. He served abroad and aboard the company's liners to Australia and New York City, where he quickly rose in status. In 1888, Smith earned his extra master's certificate, and he joined the Royal Navy Reserve. He later became the captain of the vessel called Majestic. He stayed at that command for nine years and was twice called into service to transport troops to South Africa during the war. Captain Smith became to be known as the Safe Captain and later known as the Millionaire's Captain. In 1904, he became the Commodore of White Star Line and was known for uh, producing, which was known for producing the world's largest ocean liners, which included the Baltic, the Adriatic, and the Olympic. Each one, at their inauguration, were the largest of their time, and Edwards would captain each of them on their maiden voyages. Each ocean liner surpassed the previous one in size, capabilities, and comforts. And it was no different when he was called on to captain that which would become his last ship, the RMS Titanic. Proudly named after the Greek gods, the Titanic set off on its maiden voyage, and would carry some of the wealthiest people in the world. The first-class accommodations were designed to be the pinnacle of comfort and luxury, with gymnasium, swimming pools, libraries, high-class restaurants, and opulent cabins. The Titanic had... Advanced safety features, such as watertight compartments and remotely activated watertight doors, it carried a total of 20 lifeboats, having enough space for only 1,178 people, even though in its first voyage it would be carrying 2,200, and its total capacity of over 3,000. A few days into the trip, and shortly after 11.40 p.m. on the 14th of April, 1912, Captain Smith, after receiving six messages from other ships' warning of icebergs, was informed by First Officer William Murdoch that the ship had just collided with a large iceberg. The ship's designer, who was aboard Thomas Andrews, reported that five of the ship's watertight compartments had flooded, and the captain immediately knew... Of their doom, as the Titanic could only stand four of those being flooded. And at 220 AM she broke apart and foundered with well over a thousand people still aboard. A thorough investigation exonerated the safe captain, finding that he had followed all the historical precedents and precautions. History was on his side, and it had proven that modern ships were able to survive even head-on impacts with icebergs. In fact, just five years prior to the incident of the sinking of the Titanic, the, the sage captain had declared in an interview that he could, and I quote, not imagine any condition which would cause a ship to sink. Modern shipbuilding had gone beyond that. Friends, Captain Smith was an experienced seaman who had served for 40 years at sea, including 27 years in command. Experience was on his side, but much like the rest of us who can grow complacent the longer we practice our trades and live our lives, the captain ignored the warning signs, trusted in what he thought he knew, and suffered death and shipwreck along with 1,500 others. In the icy depths of the Atlantic that night beloved we've been making our way through first Timothy now in chapter 1 we come to its conclusion today we have already learned that Paul was sent directly from Jesus to proclaim the gospel of salvation to the Gentiles after years of investment Paul was leaving the church at Ephesus for Macedonia and was concerned for its direction and doctrine after departure, so he authenticated Timothy, and will continue to do so today as the future leader of the church, commanding him to remain on. Of which we know that Timothy would stay on as a faithful servant. There, in church history, records that Timothy would die 30 years later, opposing the worship of Diana. We have seen in verse three that there were certain uh, certain men, likely older and more experienced sage type men teaching strange doctrines in the church and some were disregarding salvation by grace and faith alone and teaching the long-standing historical teachings of Judaism where your works would save you Paul goes on to remind Timothy in the church some and some 2,000 years later uh, that regardless of the depth of our sin The grace of our Lord is more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Friends, Captain Edward Smith was like those certain men in the church of Ephesus who held on to tradition. And rather than heeding the warnings of the apostles that salvation was by grace through faith alone, some, as we'll see today, will suffer shipwreck. Today we'll see that Timothy, in light of the strange doctrines and misuse of the Jewish law, would, like us, have to fight the good fight of faith so that those aboard the church would not suffer shipwreck, losing thousands, if not millions, of souls
1: to eternal hell. The Spirit-inspired
0: apostle starts off with this Command there in verse 18. This command. These words hearken us back to the military like statements that Paul has been using, these commands, these entrustments that he has given Timothy and letting everyone else in the church know that the apostle is authenticating Timothy as the new leader. We find them in verse 3 and 5, where the same word command is found. In the original language, the Spirit inspired Paul to use the definite article, the, in front of command. It doesn't show up there in your text because it sounds a little bit funny, but for the Greek writer and the Greek hearer and the Greek learner, any time that definite article was added in maybe a seemingly odd spot, it helps us to understand there's emphasis being given. So quite literally,
1: The translation
0: can be, this, the command. This, the command, I entrust to you, Timothy, my son. The Spirit only uses the word entrust in two other places in the New Testament. Once in First Corinthians 10, and another time when writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, where it is written, the things, that is the gospel and sound doctrine Paul is talking about, which you have heard from me, the you there is Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses. Here comes the command. Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Entrust then holds within its meaning this idea of trusting someone with something that contains Extreme value is a banking term. It still is a banking term today that we would trust the bank with those valuable things that we would want to be safe. And Paul is trusting. He is writing Timothy in his second letter, which will be his last letter. And he is entrusting. He is begging. Please, Timothy, hold on to these things. They are so valuable. Entrust them. And where the Apostle Paul in this first letter to Timothy is entrusting Timothy in his second letter, he is giving Timothy this instruction that I'm going to be gone. He says it there in the last few verses of chapter 2 that I am now being poured out. I'm going to be gone. So Timothy, entrust these faithful things to faithful men who will be able to entrust them to others. And here we sit, beloved, right? some 2,000 years later. What an amazing thing that God has been entrusting the gospel through the church, week in, week out, as we wait for the second advent. Amen? Paul is entrusting the most valuable piece of information the world has ever known, the good news of eternal salvation. Through faith in Christ, to a weak vessel like you and I, to Timothy, Timothy he uses this same word in trust in the same way telling Timothy that he must trust he must delegate he must deliver sound doctrine the gospel to these faithful men beloved the gospel must be passed on as we have considered chapter 1 maybe you have picked up on the theme but it has been the gospel that is the point of nearly every message of chapter 1 and why wouldn't it be It was under attack then it is under attack today it does no good for the church to gather if the gospel does not exist it just is another social club the gospel must be central Paul wrote as an apostle he outranked anyone in Ephesus they knew it and at this point in history If there was any question as to who, in Paul's absence, was to lead the church, it could not be made any clearer than it is being made right now. It was Timothy, his son in the faith, who was to lead, look there in your text, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning him. Friends, the epistle to the Ephesians Ephesians, that Paul would write a little bit later makes clear that when Christ ascended after the resurrection, he gave gifts to mankind to establish the church's doctrine so that the church could mature, come to growth, come to a, a, a full set of canonical teachings that we now have in our Scripture. But if you can try to place your feet back in that time, Paul is going, right, to these Jewish synagogues. He's preaching the gospel until he gets pushed out of those synagogues. uh, God saves some. God doesn't save others. Some of all of those come into the church. There is a lot of confusion, maybe more so on the Jewish side than there would be on the Gentile side because the Gentiles are just happy to be being saved but the Jews are wrestling and they're struggling, right? Trying to figure out the same, some of the same issues that are major topics within the seminaries today. What effect then is the law today on the Christian today? And the battle ensued. They didn't just get to go grab their Bibles and see what Peter had to say about it. They didn't get to go grab their Bibles and read Matthew, Mark, Luke. And John and figure out what in the world the whole of the canon of text and so, uh, and so Paul reveals there in Ephesians that God was giving men to that first century church some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the building up of the body of Christ that they would become like Christ. And it's some, it, some 300 years later, they, they finally. Land on the last couple books or what they're going to say were canonized in the scripture, but for hundreds of years. They had been using copying and reading the text that you have in your
1: hand in the New Testament. It was only then
0: that doctrine had been and could be established and be being put in the hands of men to study. Until then, in that first century, God was giving apostles, prophets, evangelists, and teachers.
1: Chapter 4, verse 12 says as
0: much. And although it is not specifically clear as to the content of the prophecies, the context here, the prophecies concerning Timothy, the context here reveals that Paul is entrusting Timothy with the ministry of the gospel versus the historical precedents of Judaism, those of the false teachers. In the same manner, Paul encourages Timothy, saying this in, uh, in, in 1 Timothy 4, verse 14 Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance. There it is. With the laying on of hands, it's how God was moving in his spirits, in His spirit, during this early season in the church, by the elders, right? By the presbytery. Regardless of the content of the prophecies that Paul is referring to, he is now affirming that which the prophets had already said concerning Timothy's role in the church, that by them, that's the prophecies, you, Timothy, fight the good fight. Timothy was to be at the head, at the
1: helm. You have probably heard of the idiom,
0: a hill that you want to die on. It is derived from a military context in which the high ground is the most valuable ground to possess during a battle. From its heights, one can see the enemy coming, and if you have ever tried to take a hill or shoot uphill at anything, it's difficult. You can't lay on the ground and look up. You can't pick your head up, but when you're up above and you're looking down, it is like shooting ducks on the water. It's so easy. You can see, you can orient your body in a comfortable way, and Uh, you know, in the times that I, uh, coming up through the Ranger Battalion like I did, uh, the only way to take a hill was to to go at it with mass force, knowing that you were going to have mass casualties. You handled a hill the same way that you would handle an ambush. There's no way to survive an ambush but to run straight at it.
1: And we hear that idiom, is it a hill that
0: you want to die on. Is it that important to you? Fighting to take a hill from an enemy is nearly impossible, often resulting in mass casualties. One must be sure that the hill is worth the cost
1: of attempting to take
0: it. And the apostle is affirming here that the hill of eternal salvation was a hill that Timothy must fight and die. Beloved,
1: are we that serious about our faith? That we die
0: that we would fight? Are that serious about doctrine? Are we that serious about how God has moved through the centuries that we would protect and that we would be willing to die on that hill?
1: False teachers abound. Just turn on your TV
0: and search for quote-unquote Christian stations. And you will see false gospels preached over and
1: over and over. They're popular. They tend to gather a lot of people with them on their treks across the Atlantic.
0: We're going to be the church. We, like Timothy, will have to fight the good fight. Beloved, we do not have to be in the church for too long, do we? To have had some real struggles heartaches and victories. I think it's important for us to identify with that. I don't know how many people I've met through the ages that uh, went through a struggle in a church, and I get it, we've been through some tough ones. It just kind of make you feel like, I don't want to go back. <laughs> I don't want to be involved. I don't want to be around those people. I'll just worship my God and, uh, on my own time, in my own way. I can identify, I can sympathize with those struggles. But we cannot stay there we cannot keep on doing that we are called together as Christ's body that we might serve one another and serve a community and have an effect that we might pass on the gospel to the next generation to weaken in the war to weaken from the battle and step back and stay there is to lose the battle it's to lose the battle for the church We must fight on. We must fight the good fight.
1: It's often said that if you find a perfect church,
0: that you should not go there. Because why? You're going to ruin it. Our expectation is this, is that sin exists. We know that. We know where sin exists in our lives, that it's going to cause destruction, death, pain, struggles, And as I look at just a few people here this morning, as we come together, the closer we get, the more aware of each other's sins we're going to become. The more likely, the longer we stay together, something is going to happen, that somebody's going to have an opinion, and it's going to potentially cause some kind of division. That's why uh, Paul would go on to teach the Philippian church that they need to fight for unity and have this mind in them that was in Christ Jesus who although he was the king of the universe, the creator of the universe, right? Did not consider that something to be grasped, but he gave it up. He came in the likeness of men. He humbled himself. Paul would go on to tell the church, you must humble yourselves, you must expect that sin is going to have its play inside the church, and we must fight the good fight, amen? There are times to get off the front lines. We certainly have done that as a family. Back up a little bit, catch our breath, and get back in the game. Amen? The church has within its walls regenerate Christians, unregenerate professing Christians, those who are seeking to become Christians, those who are seeking to destroy them, and everything in between. So you say, why in the world would I want anything to do with the church? Because when you fight the good fight of advancing the gospel, and when you see someone receive the Spirit of the living God, and they go from death to life, and a life is mirac- miraculously changed, and marriages are healed, and relationships are healed, and they go on to pass that gospel on to someone else, and life continues, it's worth the fight. how do we know that that person that we don't share the gospel with would be the next Billy Graham John MacArthur Charles Spurgeon Jonathan Edwards we don't know each one of those men each one of those amazing women who were missionaries throughout the world each one of them had some faithful person (laughs) opening their Bible right and reading to them And they got saved, and God used them in powerful ways and literally are still continuing today to change millions of lives. I love to read Charles Spurgeon and Jonathan Edwards. They're changing my life. What a fun thing we can say. I can go back in time. I can sit down with Jonathan Edwards and learn about his theology written on the pages. He's still changing lives. Beloved, why get in the fight? Why stay in the fight? Why fight the good fight? The gospel must move forward and we never know
1: we never know who we're going to share with not too long ago and i uh,
0: had this great privilege of getting a phone call from the ranger battalion chaplain who opened his bible to the book of job with me and i was a young man in my early 20s and I did not grown up in the church. I really didn't want anything to do with the church, and I was honestly bored to death. And uh, my unit, I had been hurt because I had, uh, had had a malfunction in some of my equipment falling out of an airplane. And so I could not <laughs> go out into the field with the rest of my team. And that Ranger Battalion chaplain was faithful. I got to that Bible study that night. I had never owned a Bible in my life. I'd never read a Bible in my life. I'd never looked at a Bible. And we opened to Job chapter 1, and we began to read, and I was convicted of my
1: sin. God changed my life.
0: Just last year I sat down with a friend who's been an Army chaplain for a lot of years and I was telling him, recounting that story, telling him how much I appreciated the chaplaincy and the difference it made in my life and how it would be so cool if I could ever have the opportunity to tell that chaplain how grateful I was that he was there that day and he opened the Bible that night and we read it together. And I thought, man, how cool would it be to just, just to tell him thank you You did your part. And the guy said to me, this friend of mine for a lot of years, well, I know him. I got him right here on my phone. He texted him, gave him my phone number, and my phone rang
1: just some months ago, and we talked for an hour. We just talked, and I told him, thank you. He fought the good fight. He shared the gospel. He changed a life.
0: And what a privilege I get to stand now today and do the same. Amen? You say, why would I want anything to do with the church? Because of that. Lives are changed. And those lives,
1: faithful to the world, will change others. Amen?
0: Here the apostle confirms that the truth of the gospel of faith is a hill that Timothy has got to be willing to die on, and we, 2,000 years later, must be willing to die on that same hill. Anything worth fighting for is costly. Christianity is not for the weak of heart, and if you are born again or like Timothy and called to be a pastor, get ready to fight, because it's going to come at you. And how do we fight that good fight? Look there in the text. Keeping the faith, number one, and a good conscience. Every soldier needs to know the weapons of his warfare. Wear, warfare, excuse me. And here, the spirit-inspired apostle tells Timothy and us a millennia later, first to keep the faith. This reminder harkens back to the problem facing the church, found in verse three and 4. Four false teachers were teaching strange doctrines. It didn't sound right. And how many of you know? I, I remember this. As a young man, I got saved. I didn't understand any of that. It was was at a church that I would not feel comfortable in today by any stretch of the imagination. But this is what I knew for some reason because the Spirit of God now lived inside of me every time that somebody shared truth from the text. I don't know how. I just knew that I knew it was right. And then every time something strange came out of someone's mouth, it's just like, that just doesn't seem right. The Holy Spirit inspired our text, right? He writes this text down. And when somebody's speaking that which he said, there's something in your heart that is saying, Amen, 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 I agree. And when something gets said that's a little bit weird, you're like, That doesn't sound right. It's because the author, the Spirit of God, lives inside of you, he's affirming that which you're hearing. It sounded strange to their ears. Those strange doctrines. Secondly, there were Jewish false teachers who were using the law unlawfully, as as Paul had mentioned already, teaching that the future salvation from God's wrath on sin could be attained by keeping those laws. The verb keeping, uh, the verb keeping is found in the original language in the present tense and the active mood and that tells us right something we we know intuitively but we might kind of blow past it quickly as we're reading the text that we are to be keeping on keeping on there's never a time that you can't that that you can just sit back and shut it off the fight is always on believe me beloved i don't know if the devil sleeps it doesn't seem like it and that temptation for us is certainly to get a little passive fall back, let somebody else do the work. We all face that, don't we? So Paul uses this Greek tense in the word keeping, this participle that lets us know that we are never to stop. We are to keep
1: on keeping on.
0: That high ground is simply identified here at Hill as the faith what we know as the good news, the gospel. And it affirms these things, and it always has, it always will, that God is merciful and just. That man is valuable, but unable to save themselves from their sinful condition. That Jesus was both God and man. He had to live a righteous life. He couldn't just die on the cross. He had to live a righteous life tempted just as you and I are tempted and he had to pass those tests then he must die an unrighteous death on the cross for you and I both of those things had to exist so god is merciful and just man is valuable but unable to save themselves deep in their sinful condition god is both uh, jesus is both god and man living righteously dying an unrighteous death on humanity's behalf, and then rising from the dead, he undid the death that Adam brought to humanity. And finally, that hill of faith that we must die on must ask people to respond rightly. Every person needs to respond to those truths in faith, and they will be
1: saved. In addition to the weapon of faith that
0: the church and Timothy were going to have to keep on keeping they were to keep a good conscience this is something we don't talk about a lot in today's world remember as an electrician as a young electrician when I was growing up I was a, an apprentice underneath my my journeyman and we would often have to make decisions about the costs of items that we were going to ultimately charge people and and he would almost always say something like this, let your conscience be your guide. Well, that can be true <laughs> at certain times in our life, and God certainly gives us conscience, but it is not always good. Amen? Let's dig into this just a little bit. Where having right faith is enough for salvation, God's will for the Christian is that they would have a good conscience. Even in our fallen, sin-stained condition, God has given us a conscience to help guide us. And as we mature, as we grow, as we get older, (laughs) our sin-stained conscience begins to allow us to think that we can do things that we should not be doing. Recently I was talking with a friend who had a friend who had kindergartners. And they had gone off to school, and it was their first trip to school, and they were having fun and doing all the things that kindergartners, I'm sure, are doing, sitting on the letters of their names and learning the alphabet. But one kindergartner was observant, and he noticed that two men had brought one of his classmates to school. And he went home, and he asked his parents,
1: Why does that kid have two dads? now let me point something out to you the kindergartner's conscience knew what was right
0: (laughs) look at that something seemed off something wasn't right it didn't look right to him the conscience god had given him was pricked it was odd it was different he didn't understand in answering those questions, beloved right, either sears our children's conscience, makes them hard to the sin God has allowed them to see
1: Or it will keep them in
0: freedom, paying attention to those consciences. So we know as parents, how we must answer those questions by telling them that mankind in their sin hates the rules that God has placed to govern society. And where it is clear that marriage is between one man and one woman, man loves to resist those constraints and chases after every evil desire that they have. We must tell our kids that. Secondly, we must tell them that God has given us His Word to keep our consciences on track and to remind us of how desperately... Bad, that we need His mercy in our lives. Amen? We must tell them. The Ten Commandments uh, are a powerful yet practical tool to help us to keep and tear off the calluses that we tend to build on our consciences. I want to take just a moment, and my whole purpose in doing this is to just uh, push on you a little bit to see how much your conscience has been seared. And I'm going to just use the Ten Commandments. The first of which, God proclaims that you shall have no other gods before you. There are no other gods. Now, we might sit in here in this crowd and say, yeah, oh yeah, amen, right? God is one. But let me ask you, when you're talking to your friends who believe that all roads lead to heaven that as long as they do a little bit more right than wrong, that God will be merciful in the end, and that all those people who have maybe never heard the gospel but are trying to live in some obscure place in the world, they'll all end up there, and everybody who who worships Buddha, and everybody who worships uh, Muhammad, and, and they'll all end up there. What's your response? Do you back off? you revert back to the first commandment and do you say no there will be no other gods before
1: have you seared your conscience take it a little deeper
0: the second commandment there shall be no idols you shall worship no idol both crafted and the heart idols found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. We understand those crafted idols to be things that would be crafted and and set up and people would worship. But the New Testament goes to, as it usually does, not just the fact that we worship some created thing, but why we worship it. Paul gets after this to the Colossians who were struggling with heresy. He says this in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. How much TV do you watch? Impurity. How often are we uh, lusting after those things, especially sexual lust that we should not? Passion. The world calls passion a good thing. The Bible everywhere proclaims that passion is negative, is bad. Evil desires and greed, which amounts to what? Idolatry. It is not just some crafted item that sits on a shelf that we worship. It is the the deeper issues going on in our hearts. It is idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. The third commandment, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Just the other day, I heard a professed Christian take Jesus' name in vain. It made my skin crawl. Number four, you shall keep the Sabbath holy, set apart. God's command for a day of rest. How many of us break that? and we justify it away, well, if I could just get a little bit more done, if I could just get a a little bit extra done, and we don't take that rest, and pretty soon we're ineffective, we're not loving the Lord well, we're not loving our families well, we are living a life that is all about work. Is that you?
1: How about honoring your father and mother?
0: That can be challenging, especially if they are dishonorable. About not murdering which the New Testament extends this physical action to the heart attitude of hate. About not committing adultery, Any time you look on another human being with a lustful thought, you have broken the law of God, deserving of punishment. Have you ever stolen, taken something, the smallest thing, a pen, a piece of paper? Have you maybe done it for years now, and now you're taking more things? You're stealing more. Do you pay your taxes? That's stealing. How about lying? I'm willing to just kind of do this white lie, right? I don't want to quite share all the truth here. It might cost me my ego. It might cost me some money. It might cost me my job. How about coveting? Listen, I struggle with this one. I'm serious, man. It breaks my heart. There's a guy down the street that owns a 1996 Ford F-250 diesel, 7.3 liter power stroke. And it's like pristine, right? It shines. He hooks his boat up to it. He wants to pull his boat off. And I drive by that. And I'm telling you, I'm confessing. This is confession. (laughs) I drive by that thing. I want it. And there's times when it breaks my heart because it's not, I'm not content. With the things that God has given me. So it is the gospel of faith and a good conscience that there in your text, which some have rejected. Here we see that some of those who have gathered at the church in Ephesus have rejected the faith and a good conscience and have suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Love it, on that fateful night in the middle of the Atlantic in April of 1912, millions of dollars of personal effects were lost, along with some of the finest accommodations known to any ocean liner. The single most valuable item that was lost on the Titanic was reported by the insurance company, was a painting that had been purchased by a man who would become one of the very few survivors, just over 700 In today's currency, it would be worth over $2 million.
1: What is it worth today? Nothing. Jesus would say that if a man would gain the whole world but lose his soul, what a tragedy. Do you value the gospel?
0: Paul uses the imagery of a shipwreck to describe those people in the church who reject the gospel of grace and living holy lives. The idea Paul is describing is much grander than momentary items being destroyed by icy water in the Atlantic. It is the potential of the loss of a soul in eternal punishment, not in some icy grave but in a fiery eternal hell and punishment. You see, friends, a ship is designed to carry valuable cargo from one place to the other. The church is like a ship. It is to carry its passengers safely to eternity with their Creator. The only precondition is that you stay on the ship, which is duly called faith and a good conscience. The text tells us here that there are many professed Christians abandoning the ship of salvation by faith, and living holy in Ephesus. Look there, among these, verse 20. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander. So there is a plurality of people leaving. They're leaving over this idea that they can earn their salvation. And Hymenaeus and Alexander, of whom are likely leading the others in the false doctrine, are right in the middle of it. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 18, Hymenaeus makes his way into this this epistle also for teaching heresy, and this is what it says, saying that the resurrection has already taken place. Although it is not clear that it is this particular false teaching in this epistle, it is clear that he is a serious problem to the church. Hymenaeus is listed first before Philetus in 2 Timothy, leaving us the impression that he is likely the leader of those those people who are leaving the faith. He is pulling them out. He is probably knocking door to door. He's shown up probably for years to the church in Ephesus. He's built relationships, and now he doesn't like the gospel of by grace through faith alone. And he is going around and he is trying to undo and get everybody on his Titanic. on the other hand Alexander was a common Greek name and it is not certain at all that he shows up anywhere else in the New Testament but because 2nd Timothy is written to Timothy he is still the pastor of the church in Ephesus it is likely that Alexander is Alexander the coppersmith of whom Timothy is warned about in 2nd Timothy the Apostle says that he has handed them over to Satan Paul describes that which he has affirmed in other places in the New Testament, that those who teach misguided doctrines are to be dealt with immediately, allowed to be handed over to what we would call the prince of the power of the air, or the God of this world, handed over to Satan. The apostle had instructed Titus, his other son in the faith, as he was going around establishing elders in the churches at Crete, saying this in chapter 3 verses 10 through 11.
1: Reject a factious man
0: after a first and second warning knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning being self-condemned.
1: When it comes to
0: false doctrine being spread in the church it is a serious thing and it must be dealt with in a serious matter. The elders of the church are almost always the ones involved in this. I pray that we would never have to do it, but at the same time, I have been around the church long enough to know that we will. It's likely that Hymenaeus and Alexander were teaching historical Judaism, unwilling to listen to the warnings of the New Testament teachers. They were blasphemers, the kind of which Paul spoke about himself in verse 13, saying that I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. They would not repent, and so Paul had to hand them over to the church, or to Satan. It's important to remember that for us, that church discipline, although discipline always sounds negative, is not to be punitive, but it is rather to be restorative. We are to come around people begging the people to repent and return to Christ. The Christian is to love their enemies and to pray for those who persecute them. And as much as somebody who would come in and tear and rip and lie and cause problems, our heart as Christians should be to recognize the sin and know, right, that First John says that he who is truly a believer will not continue in sin and so we look at that person as an unbeliever and we beg them, right? You've been faking it. You're not a believer. You're continuing in sin. A Christian can't continue in sin. Come back, repent of your sin.
1: As the heartbeat, it is restorative.
0: It is asking people to come back to Christ. But like a child who needs to learn the error of their way, church discipline is necessary. It is a piece of what the church must do in order to stay healthy and safe. This removing is the final piece of the disciplinary act, hoping that although their faith has been shipwrecked, that the loss of fellowship and the protection that the church allows will restore them to their faith. When they get out there on their own, my pastor's, and Laramie always says it's an interesting thing to watch wolves as they come in and they divide the sheep and they pull them out. It says over the years that as he has watched that and, and then years go by, he has watched each, most of each one of those people who were deceived by those wolves. They end up alone, discouraged, never going back to church. At the time they think, oh, this false teacher, he's got it all together. He's a charismatic speaker. He, he really makes me feel great. I should just follow along after him. And the next thing you know, the true hearts are revealed. The people are alone. They're broken. They see through it.
1: And they're outside of the fold. Being destroyed.
0: On April 14, 1912, people had entrusted their lives and all their possession to the largest, safest ocean liner of its time, being captained by the time-tested sage, the safe captain, only to be buried in the icy waters of the Atlantic. Captain Edward Smith was the captain of the Titanic, and he was like those certain men in the church of Ephesus who had history on their side. And just like Captain Smith, who did not, need, did not heed the warnings about icebergs, these men in the church would not listen to the apostles' warnings. Paul taught that, uh, that the salvation of man was not by the works of the law, but by grace through faith alone, and some would not listen, and they were going to suffer eternal shipwreck for their error. Timothy was entrusted, beloved, with the ministry of the gospel. He was just like us who must fight the good fight of salvation by grace through faith so that the church will not suffer shipwreck losing thousands if not millions of lives. As we have concluded chapter 1, I hope that there is something that God is working on the inside of your heart to the importance of understanding the battle, one that was going on historically, All the way back in the first century, I think we so often read the book of Acts and think, oh, what a wonderful time. I'm telling you. Can you imagine the battle that was going on for the church? No Bible written yet. People saying, well, I heard an apostle say this. Well, I think the resurrection has already happened. Come follow me. You know you cannot get the works of the law. They they couldn't turn to Romans. They couldn't turn to Galatians and understand rightly what's going on between the law and grace. Oh, what a battle. Beloved, we have this great privilege today to read our scriptures, to know it well. I really encourage you to get in the fight. Fight the good fight. I'm reminded right now as I'm, uh, I'm speaking that it is often said that the doctrine divides. And I agree. It does and it should. If you don't have a stomach for reading the text, getting into it, thinking well, thinking clearly, working hard at understanding what God has said, then there is a problem in your life. These are the eternal words of life. They mean everything to everybody and to you. We have this great privilege, amen? We can fight the good fight with a a full arsenal of God's weapons. word amen let's pray father we thank you for um, your word we thank you Lord God that uh, you have entrusted it through the ages to faithful men who will entrust it again to others I pray Lord as a church that we would take that seriously that we would see the generational transfer that needs to happen that we would be serious about knowing the word Lord and knowing you that we might see others saved, oh God, I pray that
1: we do not become so complacent,
0: so scared, that we wouldn't share the gospel and continue to pass it on, Lord. Help us in this endeavor, Lord. We know we cannot do it without you and without your strength. We'll give you all the glory, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.